Uh, welcome to today's program. My name is Glenn Deason. I'm a professor of Russian politics in Norway. And with me is my colleague, Alexander Mercuris from the very, very popular The Durand podcast. And our guest today is very interesting. It's uh, Belarusian ambassador, uh, Dmitry Mironchik. Uh, welcome, ambassador. Uh, very nice to be on the program today, Glenn. Nice to meet you, Alexander. So, yeah, me and Alexander, we really wanted to have this uh, discussion with you as uh, the role of Belarus is, uh, well, it seems to be growing. It has a, uh, more clearly an important role to play in the world. And also I find that many people don't know that much about Belarus, which often allows politicians and media to speak in cliches and stereotypes. Uh, however, yeah, we felt it's uh, the need now for a greater insight into understanding uh, yeah, the role of Belarus uh, as its importance are, is growing now. Um, so more specifically, we see Russia and Belarus, uh, you know, getting closer. Uh, Belarus now hosts uh, nuclear weapons of Russia. We saw the role of uh, Lukashenko recently mediating this uh, issue between the Russian authorities and Wagner. Belarus has a very important role in food security, which is becoming an ever important uh, issue. Um, we also see that Belarus has a growing role in the Greater Eurasian Partnership. Uh, it has a very unique economy in many ways and linking itself closer with not just China and the global south. Uh, we also see it has a complicated relationship with the West. Uh, often, I would say, there's a failure here in the West to recognize the Belarusian interest and what it wants. Uh, uh, we also have seen the Belarus had a fallout with Ukraine and uh, uh, many also un unclear about the somewhat ambigu ambiguous role about uh, of Belarus in the Ukraine Ukrainian war. So we're hoping to shed some light <laughs> on all of this to, to the extent it's possible. Uh, so again, there's a lot of topics. So hopefully we get to cover uh, most, or if not all. Uh, anyways, I suggest we, yeah, we just <laughs> jump into it. And uh, I thought that perhaps we could start with uh, the current, uh, well, the war in uh, Ukraine. Uh, well, first, what, what happened to the relations between Belarus and Ukraine? Because you did have a bit of a fallout, which now influenced the policies. And um, also, what, what is the role of Belarus in this uh, war? Well, uh, thank you very much indeed. We have a lot of topics. Uh, thank, thanks for giving and um, uh, such an overview of them. Uh, and uh, I hope we have enough time to co uh, cover, uh, if not all of them, then most of them. Uh, Ukraine is indeed very high on the on the agenda. Uh, it is uh, of paramount importance uh, for us, uh, as Belarus is a neighboring country, which uh, shares not only a border with Ukraine, but which uh, shares uh, a lot of history, a lot of families, and uh, uh, to to put you into, let's say, an uh, uh, an understandable setting. If you compare. Uh, uh, Belarus and Ukraine relations uh, to relations between some other countries or links uh, between Belarus and Ukraine to links between other countries. Uh, Ukrainian and Belarusian language are pretty much uh, similar to, uh, to Swedish and Norwegian. So uh, roughly 90% of, of the words are the same. Uh, there are differences, but two people understand each other without needing uh, an interpreter. Still, one speaks Belarusian, the other speaks Ukrainian. This 
makes us very similar yet unique. Belarus, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, Belarus, like no other, was interested in uh, successful, uh, prosperous and developing Ukraine. We always maintain very good and active trade relations with uh, Ukrainians. And, uh, well, I remember uh, maybe a decade ago, uh, Belarus was uh, quite outspoken, saying that we would welcome uh, Ukraine becoming a member of uh, the European Union, because then we will have a strong supporter within uh, the Union, and uh, our links and uh, with the Union will be stronger, and maybe this could influence our relations with the EU uh, for the better, not for the worse. We were, uh, 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 of course, uh, of absolutely different opinion when it came to NATO, because uh, security uh, perceptions uh, in Belarus uh, were uh, um, different uh, in Belarus than uh, in, in Ukraine. But when it came to stronger economic ties uh, between Ukraine and the West, we were all in. We were all in favor. Uh, in 2014, uh, Belarus was uh, uh, really uh, doing its utmost to help Ukraine, not to implode as, as a state and to uh, preserve itself as a sovereign, independent country. Uh, if uh, you look back uh, into 2015, uh, the ceremony of inauguration of uh, then President Poroshenko. President Lukashenko was sitting there alongside with then Vice President Joe Biden. And uh, the round of applause uh, given by um, the Ukrainian parliament to Lukashenko was way louder and longer than the one to the vice uh, president of the United States for a reason, because like no other country, Belarus invested heavily uh, its uh, political capital, its influence, uh, its its heart and soul into uh, helping Ukraine uh, to overcome uh, the hardships uh, it con uh, it was confronted uh, with uh, back in 2014 and 2015, uh, we uh, did our best uh, to to save Ukraine, and we had a lot of hopes when it comes to uh, the so-called Minsk process. Uh, Minsk agreements, first Minsk one, then Minsk two agreements. They were called uh, so not only because they were reached uh, in in Minsk and uh, with in in our capital, but also because they launched what was called Minsk process, um, chaired by the OC, hosted by Belarus, and actively supported by Belarus. Back then, there was a trilateral contact group: uh, uh, Ukraine, um, uh, the uh, Donetsk and Lugansk, Russian Federation, um, and uh, personal representative of the chairman in office of the OC. They were meeting in Belarus regularly, um, twice a month at least, 
And I was present pretty much uh, during every meeting held uh, in Minsk between 2014 and 2018. I cannot, uh, I cannot really describe you how much hope we had back in 2015 that this Minsk process will lead to a swift settlement in, in Ukraine that the contact group and subgroups on political settlement, on economic issues, on humanitarian issues, will be able to find ways to implement Minsk agreements, and we will be back to a peaceful, sovereign uh, uh, Ukraine enjoying territorial integrity. Unfortunately, these uh, hopes never came true, and they were diminishing with every meeting. And uh, this was both professionally but also personally a severe blow to me when I heard uh, Chancellor, first Chancellor Merkel, ex-Chancellor Merkel, and then uh, ex-president of uh, France, Francois Hollande, uh, saying that, in fact, Minsk agreements and Minsk process were a mockery of diplomacy. They were uh, just uh, an, uh, uh, an invention uh, to, to, to promote a completely different agenda. So the hopes and the policy Belarus has been uh, pursuing towards Ukraine, uh, well, they, 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 they capsized. Especially uh, drastic uh, the difference between our hopes and expectations towards Ukraine uh, and the reality became in 2020 and 2021. While Belarus was doing its utmost to help Ukraine uh, during the time of political crisis, internal turmoil in 2014, Bel uh, Ukraine was doing exactly the opposite when we encountered problems, both uh, in our relations with the West and internally in 2020. Uh, maybe we will come to that um, uh, at a later point in our conversation, but the real history of uh, contacts between Belarus and Wagner, uh, well, for the first time, these two words came together in the headlines of the international media, not in 2023, but in July 2020, due to actions uh, by uh, Ukraine security services. Back in 2021, uh, Ukraine was not following the West, uh, um, uh, exerting pressure and introducing sanctions against uh, Belarus. It was leading, it was the first to close down uh, skies uh, on Belarus and Queens in May 2021, uh, it uh, introduced really exceptional sanctions against, against Belarus. <clears throat> so all this capital of mutual trust was pretty much dismantled uh, and annulled by, uh, by uh, Ukraine by the uh, end of uh, 2021, beginning of 2022. That's, that's where it all started. Nevertheless, uh, that's when the current round of events started in February 
Nevertheless, Belarus uh, did its best to 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 uh, help uh, resolve conflict peacefully. Um, uh, it is rarely mentioned today, but uh, there were three rounds of peace talks in Belarus in February and March uh, 2022, and uh, the draft uh, agreement uh, discussed in Istanbul in the end of March was more or less um, ready uh, after the third round of talks in in, uh, in Belarus. But first these talks were transferred from uh, remote and, uh, and silent places in Belarus to, let's say, uh, rumorous and uh, uh, very media-friendly Istanbul. And then they they capsized. Uh, you, still, we are we are there promoting a diplomatic solution, uh, standing ready to assist uh, to, to a diplomatic solution. And although uh, neither the West nor U Ukraine seems uh, seem to be eager uh, to have a diplomatic solution, we hear voices also coming from Ukraine saying that Belarusian president, President Lukashenko, is uh, is someone who should be on the negotiating team when it comes to, 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 to negotiations between Ukraine and, and Russia. Well, thank you for that extremely interesting uh, summary of the situation between Belarus and Ukraine. I, I, I would make one particular point in addition to it which I, I would like you to comment on, Ambassador, because I get the very strong sense that, in fact, Belarus has a particular interest in Ukraine for the reasons that you said, that they have that there's this very strong connection between Belarus and Ukraine. But my overall impression of foreign policy on the part of Belarus is that what it essentially wants is peace and stability in its region, not just with Ukraine, but all around itself. And I think that Westerners in particular have very little knowledge of Belarus, as Glenn correctly said, and very little knowledge of the history of Belarus. And if you are familiar with Belarus's experiences during the Second World War, for example, you would know why Belarus is so anxious to have peace and stability in its region so that it can pursue a policy of peace and stability for itself. And this is one of the great tragedies of this whole crisis, that this is neither understood in the West and that it is so willfully disregarded. We've seen a crisis in Ukraine and one almost senses sometimes that some people would want to extend it to Belarus itself. But beyond that, they don't seem to be able to understand that when Belarus wants peace and stability, it means it seriously, not just because of the you know, reasons of affection that you've described, but because of its own history and its own not fairly recent past. Indeed, uh, I think you you, uh, you give a very concise but very precise description uh, of uh, 
one of the main drivers behind our foreign policy. Indeed, uh, one uh, it is difficult uh, to to understand uh, the reasoning behind uh, uh, Belarusian foreign policy. Sometimes, if you uh, ignore the not so uh, recent uh, history, uh, the Second World War, uh, first and foremost, uh, during which we lost one third uh, of uh, our population, and. Uh, uh, it uh, uh, and Belarusians as as people were destined to to disappear from uh, the map of Europe. General Plan Ost, which is uh, which was the master plan of Nazi Germany for our part of uh, Europe. Uh, uh, adopted by by the Germans before. Um, uh, their attack on the Soviet Union in, in May uh, 19, uh, 1941. According to it, 10% uh, of Belarusian population were supposed to be eliminated uh, because uh, they were expected to, to, uh, to fight uh, German occupation. 15% uh, of the population were uh, supposed to be Germanized while the, the rest were uh, supposed to be transferred. We, we all know what it, what it meant uh, in reality. And uh, uh, three years of uh, brutal, uh, really bloody German uh, occupation uh, that left a very deep mark on uh, Belarusian uh, national character. Uh, unlike most of European countries, uh, Belarusians never stopped fighting. During the occupation, uh, there were um, roughly uh, 400,000 partisans fighting the Germans behind the front line. Uh, by spring 1944, some 40% of the country were in fact liberated uh, and were under control of the partisans. But they knew all too well that if the Red Army doesn't come from the East, they will never have a chance to survive and to win. Hence our very strong, also uh, emotional connection to our friends in the East, to our friends in, in, in Russia. And Belarus is indeed unique because we, we understand that if the outcome of the Second World War would have been different, Belarus wouldn't exist and Belarusians will not exist. That is why we are the only republic of the former Soviet Union which celebrates its uh, National Day on the 3rd of July, which is, in fact, the day of the liberation of Minsk from the Nazis. We know that that's where our independence comes from. That's, that was the indeed the, 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 the birthday of Belarus as a political nation. As for the current situation, I agree. A lot of politicians, they tend to overlook Belarus and ignore what, what, what 
our perception of the situation are uh, although some experienced uh, uh, authors, some experts uh, in the sphere of international security, they have a very clear perception of the situation. I, I, I want to quote uh, a CIPRI policy paper uh, published in June 2019. The main security risks facing Belarus are a side effect of the deterioration in relations among major powers. And this is what needs to be addressed. Indeed, that's what we saw coming. And that's what we tried to avoid, tried to, 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 to prevent. In 2017, Belarus put forward uh, a proposal to launch a Helsinki II process. We were desperately calling European leaders or leaders of the OSCE to come together again and review current situation uh, in order to prevent it from deteriorating. Uh, this, this call of ours, uh, it was met with skepticism. I tried to promote it both in Stockholm and in Norway, and uh, uh, there were two types of reactions. Uh, some of my uh, interlocutors said, but we are fine with the existing security order. It just should be observed. It suits us very well. No need to renegotiate. So they were ignoring the risks. The others, they said, well, we see the problems. But your proposals uh, come way too early. The time will come, but it will come later. The time never came, unfortunately. And yeah, Belarus is uh, we we like in the coal mines back in the old days. Uh, uh, the the miners they took little uh, small birds with them. Because those birds, they sense gas, CO2 emitting or methane emitting from the mine way before the miners could sense it, before the explosion. So the birds were helping people to survive, uh, giving them heads up that uh, there may be a, a blow. We tried to perform the same function. It it didn't help, unfortunately, but we but we keep pushing and we we uh, keep uh, promoting and uh, advocating the idea of uh, uh, a functioning security order in Europe of uh, something that would indeed guarantee everyone's security. I I thought it was interesting what you said about. Uh... Ukraine, uh, you know, no, sorry, <laughs> Belarus fairing uh, being placed in the middle between these great power struggles again, because uh, uh, this is part of the, the the challenge when we decided to well reject the concept of a inclusive uh, European security architecture, because by expanding NATO, we move the dividing lines closer towards Russia, and it effectively has created a front line now, uh, mainly with uh, with uh, Ukraine, Belarus. Uh, uh, Georgia and Moldova 
you know, where we should belong, east or west. And it's quite interesting because usually there's similar statistics out of them. But uh, in 2021, Chatham House, uh, which is, uh, yeah, uh, pro-British British, uh, think tank, it, 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 it was writing about the polls and it found that uh, in Belarus, uh, only merely about 7% were interested in NATO. So again, single digits, uh, many more favored to have closer ties with Russia, but mo- mo- most of all, uh, they preferred to not have to choose, not to be in blocks, to be able to have relations with both sides, much like Ukraine did before the coup of 2014. And um, it looks like this is the problem. Uh, uh, in this divided Europe, uh, Belarus is again put uh, to some extent on the front line in which uh, it's ex- uh, often expected to yeah, choose one side or the other. And that's what I meant when people often, I think, don't know much about Belarus, because often you get the impression that, you know, you have this evil Lukashenko, you know, with a whip over the people. The people just want to go, they want to be more European. They want to join EU and NATO, and they want to join the West and get away from the evil Russians. So it's not about overcoming the block system. It's about choosing uh, the right block. And we choose our little heroes, our uh, just like Juan Guaido in in Venezuela, we uh, but in in Belarus you have Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, and uh, she's often paraded around the the West as being uh, one of our politicians. Actually, referred to her as the true legitimate leader of Belarus. But even the same Chatham House from Britain showed polling that when they asked the Belarusians who do prefer a president, four uh, percent back Tikhanovskaya. But yet. <laughs> She's hailed as the legitimate leader. So it's this uh, effort of choosing our own leaders for 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 these countries, uh, so they will pick the right blocks. And it's a uh, quite um, uh, yeah, the, the, the disruptive, not uh, helping Belarus in many ways. It, it would seem. Um, but um, yeah, I, I was therefore asked, uh, wondering because previously you, you, we were talking, you were mentioning uh, interference into. Uh, Belarus uh, elections and and its political systems uh, in relation to Wagner. I was hoping uh, we could circle back into this. Uh, Yes, indeed. Uh, This attempt to constrain Belarus to choose choose sides, it it was always there. It was always there. And uh, uh, I should say that a lot of politicians in the West were very much disappointed by our choice. Uh, and uh, a lot of uh, people in the West were uh, suspicious of whether this is a conscious choice, but uh, it was a, a free and indeed a conscious choice. Uh, it all started more or less in 1995 when Belarus held a referendum uh, and people were asked whether they are in favor of closer economic integration and uh, maintaining ties with uh, the Russian Federation. And the overwhelming answer was yes. Uh, while, uh, uh, let's say, popular expectations or uh, in the West where uh, people believe that everybody in the East wants to join us. And Belarus was looking the other way for its own reasons, also historical reasons, which I tried to explain. Not all of them, but also economic reasons, uh, which, which were there. Uh, we didn't want to undergo shock therapy. We were choosing the East. And this made Belarus stand out. And this, and when you stand out in, a, in an unexpected way, 
uh, you, you, you are being you are being punished. That's what we learned uh, the hard way, and that's what we keep learning. Our try our our attempts to breach this divide and bring the sides together so that we don't have to choose uh, between them, they were brushed uh, away and uh, we were pushed so and uh, uh, into the direction uh, where we are we are now. Uh, one more sentence about it. The West was thinking that we are being pushed into a corner, but this corner is pretty much 70 or 75 percent of the world and the world is round you cannot push the country into a corner there uh the wagner uh, uh story i i think one should uh it is worth mentioning some 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 things which uh which are relevant also today uh because uh belarus is being mentioned constantly now uh in connection with uh, this wagner story and how it's unfolds it's, it's being instrumentalized uh, there isn't a single representative of the Wagner Group uh, worth mentioning now in, in Belarus. Yet Poland is moving its uh, thousand uh, of its troops and uh, two hundred armored vehicles uh, towards Belarusian border under the pretext of protecting itself from the Wagner Group. Uh, the history: When uh, did Belarus and Wagner uh, came up? Uh, in in the headlines uh, of the Western media, that was uh, July 2020, and uh, it was in connection with a spectacular arrest uh, of uh, 33 uh, people uh, who were uh, perceived uh, to be a part of the Wagner Group in in Belarus. Uh, we indeed arrested this group in Minsk. It was. Uh, Merely maybe nine days, uh, nine, nine, ten days before our election, uh, they were residing in in uh, in a hotel which was uh, uh, two kilometers away from the residence of the president. Uh, they were portrayed to us as uh, part of a much bigger group, two hundred and thirty mercenaries were allegedly sent to Belarus by Russia to influence our election, not by rigging the polls, but by doing what armed and trained people usually do, by uh, staging uh, riots and uh, by by using force after the election, that was perceived as a very serious threat by us. So this group was arrested, and Ukrainians they immediately insisted that we should we should uh, transfer the group to them. We didn't do that right away. We tried to understand what was really going on, whether it was true or not that Russia indeed sends Wagner forces uh, to, to, to Belarus uh, on the eve of the elections. And after the elections happened, we saw that these 33 mercenaries were allegedly part of a way bigger group 
230. Uh, the threats never, never came, came true. And the real story came out. I, I, uh, I know that um, maybe uh, your uh, viewers uh, will have uh, it easier if I, if I quote some traditional Western sources. Uh, a year later, in September 2021, CNN, CNN published their uh, uh, investigation. Ukraine spies tried to ensnare alleged Russian war criminals with the fake website Promises of Riches and International Sting. They were being set up. The 32, along with one other man detained in southern Belarus, were the target of an elaborate intelligence sting by Ukraine with the knowledge and alleged support of the United States. That was <laughs> meddling into election watch. These are not Facebook posts. Uh, this was uh, a covert operation by Ukrainian intelligence, which on purpose gathered this group of people, some of them indeed former members of Wagner in Russia, brought them to Belarus and then made Belarus arrest them right on the eve of, the, uh, of our elections. What were the risks for us? Well, obvious. First of all, an abrupt and very, and, uh, and, and very drastic uh worsening of our relations with our strategic uh, partner and neighbor Russia. It was accused of meddling into our elections, saying sending mercenaries to, to Belarus, threatened our security forces. They were put on an extra high alert, having received such information, having arrested this man who are well trained and dangerous and who were being portrayed as part, uh, part of a large group. Hence, our security forces were reacting to the events after, after the elections also in a, in a different manner. So, but uh, to cut the long story short, uh, we indeed uh, saw very, very, uh, very swiftly after the elections that allegations of Kyiv uh, uh, never came true, and that it was a setup. And we transferred these people to Russian Federation because they never did anything illegal in Belarus. And this, of course, helped us to, uh, to create a certain trust within the Wagner group and with Mr. Prigozhin. This might be one of the factors, uh, one uh, which helped uh, President Lukashenko to be so instrumental and, and effective mm -hmm. when it when things uh, started happening in Russia last month. Mm -hmm. There's just something I wanted to add again, which is, of course, one of the problems that the West has in understanding Belarus is that they don't understand at all the relationship between Belarus and Russia, which I think you've described very well. 
But Belarus has never been a satellite of Russia. There have been times when relations between Russia and Belarus since the fall of the Soviet Union have not been easy. I mean, I can remember seeing film of President Medvedev, as he then was, you know, speaking very critically of your president in a broadcast with a warship, a Russian warship floating in the background. And, you know, this is not because Belarus changes its policies. It is because it is consistent in its policies. It seeks peace with all its neighbours. Sometimes the Russians themselves have had problems, I think, understanding this. But it is absolutely not the case that Belarus is following instructions. It is pursuing its own policy. And if you understand both its region and its history and its culture, it's very easy to understand that policy. But it is very difficult to get people in the West to see this. I cannot agree more uh, because, well, indeed, Russia un uh, is undergoing uh, an evolution and uh, there were different uh, stages in uh, relations between Russia and the West. I myself remember uh, how colleagues from, from Moscow were saying, but why can you just sort these uh, minor things out with uh, with the West? Uh, it's, it's easy uh, to do. And uh, yeah, just like Mr. Putin said, they uh, uh, for a certain period of time, Russia was thinking we are the same. We are, uh, uh, we are capitalists just like the West is. Uh, our relations with uh, Russia have always been of strategic nature for a number of reasons, not only emotional and not only historical, but also for uh, very rational reasons. Uh, back in the days of the Soviet Union, Belarus was an assembly plant of uh, the Soviet Union. We were the end of the value chain with raw materials and uh, and um, you know, spare parts coming to us from uh, all over the former Soviet Union, mostly from Russia, being assembled there in, in, in final products, which were then uh, sold all over the world, and mostly in the former Soviet Union. It is remarkable, but also very uh, important to understand uh, how Belarus, uh, how much Belarus is involved into international trade and how much we depend on international trade. Just to give you one, one figure, uh, Belarus exports uh, more than 60% of its GDP. Uh, this is a lot. To set it into comparison, Norway exports roughly one-third of its GDP. Sweden, 45% of the GDP. Yet they, they, they hail themselves as protagonists and uh, strong supporters of free trade and uh, they, they seek to, to have access to markets. We are no less 
dependent on international trade, and we uh, are no less interested to to have free access to markets. Um, back in the days, right after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we were seeking to preserve the value chain, uh, chains. Uh, we uh, were seeking to preserve the supply of raw materials and, and spare parts from Russian Federation. And we were also seeking to preserve our market in, in Russia. We were, and we always will be interested in strong and prosperous Russia, Russia because we need a strong and prosperous market. Uh, for uh, a long period of time, uh, Belarus was seeking to diversify its its uh, foreign trade, but we were doing this in a slightly different manner from uh, most of the Eastern and Central European countries or the Baltic countries, which were uh, purposefully uh, cutting their ties with Russian Federation, trying to redirect their export flows. We were doing it slightly differently. We were uh, increasing production and seeking to sell uh, extra uh, produced goods uh, to other markets, so that we, our best, um, well, uh, uh, best case scenario for for us, as we uh, saw it, would have been having one third of our trade with Russian Federation, one third of our trade with uh, the EU and West uh, as a whole, and one third with the global side, or South. What happened though, and we were quite successful in, in, in uh, uh, getting closer to this goal. What happened last year, for example, but it all started more or less three years ago when Belarus once again uh, was uh, subjected to to unprecedented uh, sanctions. Um, but last year it, it was really drastic because we lost roughly forty percent of our export markets with uh, uh, sanctions uh, of the European Union, with uh, loss of the Ukrainian market. We needed to reorient 40% of our uh, exports. We, we largely succeeded doing that. And uh, last year, it, it was really uh, remarkable uh, that uh, what we uh, could achieve because our exports fell slightly more um, <coughs> 5%. Well, a 5% fall in experts for a country which is subjected to that much sanctions is peanuts. <coughs> and another remarkable thing, we uh, reached record high uh, positive trade balance, which was <coughs> which has never been the case before. When we were trying to to conquer Western markets. For me, this is a sign. Maybe this is uh, uh, this is uh, not that science backed, let's say. But this is a sign that our trade with the West was really not that equal. Uh, because when we started looking for other trade part partners and diversifying our uh, exports, we got way more money for the same products. 
We doubled our exports to China last year. Our exports to Russian Federation grew by more than 40%. And for the first time in history, we had positive trade balance with Russian Federation. This process continues. You cannot <coughs> put the country into a corner. It's enough to look at the globe. There are no corners on the globe. Uh, so that's 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 how it uh, how it works. It's not easy. It's not easy. It's not something any country or any government would uh, would risk uh, doing at its own will just to see uh, whether it works out or not. But uh, so far, so good. It is it is working us, uh, out uh, pretty well for us. I wanted to ask uh, <clears throat> about uh, the decision recently, or not just decision, the, uh, well, for the nuclear weapons of Russia to be stationed in in uh, Belarus. Again, I'm not sure how sensitive <laughs> uh, this uh, topic is, but uh, uh, but but my yeah my I was wondering though in terms of uh, um, how this alters the the security situation for for Belarus. Uh, what is the intentions or logic behind it under what condition would it be used uh, is it the russians the, the russians who are operating it on belarusian soil or uh, what are your thoughts around this decision because it's a again it's a it's a big decision so far i think uh, uh, yeah the only ones who station nuclear weapons outside their borders is uh, the united states who has them in yeah germany netherlands belgium turkey and italy but uh, now, yeah, Russia has gone down this road as well by placing its nuclear weapons in Belarus. So, um, yes, how how does how what what are your views on this in terms of how it affects the security, not just of Belarus, but again the region? It's a sensitive question, also an emotional. Uh, yeah. term, uh, but uh, I'll do my best to uh, to, to answer it. Uh, How do we feel about it? We feel way safer. And that's the most important thing. And that's the driving uh, factor behind our Belarusian decision. Uh, you've mentioned that there are, uh, there have been, and there are um, examples uh, of uh, nuclear. Um, Arms being uh, being uh, stationed in in other countries. According to to our knowledge, to, to the best of our knowledge, uh, uh, the Ameri uh, the U.S. Uh, has roughly 150 uh, um, nuclear uh, weapons uh, in five European countries, and uh, something like 250. Uh, warplanes capable of carrying them in uh, so-called joint nuclear missions of, of NATO. Now, uh, let me explain the logic behind behind the, the Belarusian decision. And let's look uh, back in, in history just a little bit. Um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Belarus was among uh, four former Soviet republics where nuclear weapons, both tactical and strategic, were, were, were placed. These four were Russian Federation, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and, and Belarus. 
and Belarus led the way of renouncing possession of these nuclear weapons without any preconditions. We the, were the first to, to say that we are going to act in this way. While other countries, uh, mostly Ukraine, were discussing whether they should keep the nuclear weapons, whether they should get economic compensation for the nuclear weapons, and so on and so forth. We led the way by saying that we are uh, entering a non-proliferation treaty as a non-nuclear country, and we are not expecting any kind of economic compensation for the nuclear weapons. In December 1994, uh, Belarus uh, has signed the infamous Bucharest Memorandum. Oh, um, sorry, Budapest uh, Memorandum uh, with Russia, Russian Federation, uh, the United States, and the United Kingdom. In uh, 1996, nuclear weapons, both strategic and technical, nu uh, tactical nuclear weapons, were withdrawn from the territory of Belarus and transferred to Russia. You know, uh, uh, the Budapest Memorandum, uh, countries which signed, uh, signed up to this memorandum, they uh, guaranteed our security, our sovereignty, and they uh, undertook an obligation not to interfere into our internal affairs with uh, the aim of uh, undermining our sovereignty. Unfortunately, these uh, obliga obligations on the part of the United States and United Kingdom were very short-lived. In fact, in 1996, more or less after the withdrawal of the last nuclear war warhead uh, from Belarusian territory, first sanctions against Belarus were introduced. So one can say that Budapest memorandum when it comes to Belarus uh, had a very short lifespan, two years. Yet, the topic of return of nuclear weapons, placement of nuclear weapons in Belarusian territory was not on the agenda for a very, very long time. Being a professional diplomat, I can tell you when this topic first caught my eye. That happened in August 2020. That happened in connection with remarkable mission or missions Americans flew. Because back in August 2020, when Belarus held elections and events after the elections followed, American, uh, Americans uh, staged uh, a show. Uh, a show of force, uh, sending six B-52 uh, planes into Europe and flying mission along Belarusian borders, being very vocal that they are sending a signal. Of course, it was portrayed as a single of resolve and a single of NATO unity. But when uh, right after you hold an election, a superpower sends planes 
which are there to carry nuclear bombs and patrols your borders, we all understood what it means. This was uh, a wake-up call for me personally and professionally as a diplomat. That's when nuclear issues caught my eye again. What happened afterwards? Uh, you mentioned this uh, joint uh, nuclear missions uh, in NATO, and NATO is a nuclear alliance, as they, they call themselves. Uh, in 2021, Poland, our immediate neighbor, uh, became really vocal, uh, insisting that uh, the U.S. should get Poland on board and uh, that nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons, should be placed in Poland. Uh, we responded by saying that Belarus will do the same with Russia and ask Russia to uh, place, uh, to, to station uh, tactical nuclear weapons in, in our territory. This escalation spiral, it wasn't started by us. And we tried to uh, to avoid, uh, to prevent it from, uh, from, from unfolding. We reacted in conventional terms for a very long time. But there are always certain limits you have as a country, as an economy, as, uh, well, as a, a, as a military. Look what happened last year. Before we uh, uh, took this decision and made it public. Last year, Polish uh, defense budget almost doubled, uh, reaching something like 27 billion uh, euro, which is, which is a tremendous sum for us. And uh, at Vilnius summit, Poland was hailed as an absolute champion when it comes uh, to military spending. They spent uh, almost 4% of the GDP on national defense. Uh, Poland is uh, making incredibly big acquisitions of uh, military equipment. 1,000 Korean battle tanks, 334 Abrams main battle tank, and so on and so forth. Uh, Warsaw uh, officially uh, said that they are mm, going to, to uh, double their military and, and bring their uh, armed forces to 300,000 level. Yet look at the map. Poland is surrounded by mostly by friendly countries, members of the EU or NATO or countries like Ukraine inspiring to become EU. The only less friendly country for official Warsaw, which is there, is Belarus. So in theory, the only direction this 1,000 South Korean battle tanks and 334 American battle tanks can go is Minsk. Can we compete with Poland uh, 
and do the same? Can we double our military? Can we increase our military spending to 4% of our GDP? Well, no. And even if we double our military forces, which is uh, between 50,000 people in uniform and 65,000 altogether with uh, civilian personnel, we'll never outdo 300,000 Polish forces, plus 21,000 NATO forces deployed in Poland and Baltic countries, plus Baltic countries doing largely the same, mostly the same as, uh, as Poland, on, on a smaller scale. So, the policy we are pursuing, uh, this drastic step we did, is a way to avoid, uh, to stop this escalation spiral from unfolding on our part. This is an insurance for us. This is an insurance for us because Belarus says, and this is confirmed by the Russian nuclear doctrine, that these nuclear weapons can be used only in case of full-scale aggression against our country. No aggression, no use of nuclear force, of nuclear weapons. That's how it works. And again, no need to double our military spending double our uh, military forces. I had an interesting conversation with uh, with a Swedish dip- diplomat, a very clever one, and, uh, the one I, 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 uh, I often talk to. And she said, we would have have uh, we would have had no problem with Belarus doubling its military. Yeah, maybe Sweden wouldn't but we would have had. And again, there are things which uh, economy can support and cannot support, uh, which a country can uh, allow itself to do or cannot allow itself to do. So nuclear weapons in the territory of Belarus is an insurance policy. It's a deterrent against an aggression. No aggression, no need to, to fear nuclear weapons in the territory of Belarus. What, uh, when it comes to, to the terms, uh, how things are being used and so on and so forth, remember, we are part of the non-proliferation treaty. And what we do, we do in strict conformity with the non-proliferation treaty. Uh, we largely follow the best practices set by the Americans and the Belgians, the Turks, the Greeks, the Germans. Uh, So any kind of accusation that Belarus is doing something extraordinary, unseen or offensive, uh, they should be disregarded. There is one very uh, common argument being, being, being raised that Belarus is not getting more security, but rather less security. Because if uh, tactical nuclear force uh, warheads are placed in, in Bel- um, uh, weapons are placed in uh, Belarus, 
then Belarus uh, would become a target for a nuclear strike. Well, uh, of course, we were evaluating the situation from in all its uh, aspects. And uh, I, I have an answer to, to people who raise this argument and, and say that Belarus is getting less security and not more security by, uh, by placing Russian uh, tactical nuclear weapons in its territory. And the answer is, you are wrong. Uh, to give you a confirmation, we have always been a target of a possible nuclear strike by the U.S. and NATO. Um, uh, if you allow, uh, I will quote an article from an American publication, The Atlantic, uh, published in June 2022, an article which is called What if Russia uses nuclear weapons in Ukraine? During the summer of 2016, members of President Barack Obama's national security teams secretly staged a war game in which Russia invades a NATO country in the Baltics and then uses a low-yield tactical nuclear weapon against NATO forces to end the conflict on favorable terms. As described by Fred Kaplan in The Bomb, a book published in 2020, two groups of Obama officials reached widely divergent conclusions about what the United States should do. In the end, the National Security Council Principles Committee recommended a nuclear attack on Belarus, a nation that had played no role whatsoever in the invasion of the NATO ally, but had the misfortune of being a Russian ally. Summer 2016, National Security Council, headed by Nobel Peace Prize laureate Barack Obama, deciding that the best option for the U.S. to react would be to bomb, to, uh, to use nuclear weapons against Belarus. So, for those who say that now we should feel ourselves less secure, my answer is no. We are more secure now. We are way more secure now. And we've stepped out of the escalation spiral. And uh, it's not only in, and it is now that when we have this very robust and, uh, and, and strong military backup of our position, that we are ready to do the next step. And it's a diplomatic step. And uh, on the 30th of June, addressing uh, uh, Belarusians uh, on, the, uh, on the eve of the national uh, day, the president of Belarus uh, said that Belarusians need to maintain at least a bad peace with our West neighbors. Uh, let me quote, our government, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, should put forward a good neighborliness and peace plan, the Belarusian leader said. That's what we are busy elaborating now. And that, that's what we are seeking now with our Western partners. We tell them, there is no 
way an aggression against Belarus can succeed to bring fruit to anybody. Let's talk about peace. A bad, a bad peace is way better than a good war. That's, that's, that's the essence of our proposal, and uh, that's what we are going to actively seek with our Western neighbors, uh, I think including Sweden and Norway, by the way, because it is Norwegians who have their forces uh, right on the Belarusian border, and it's the Swedish who want to send their forces to the Belarusian border, not vice versa. Oh, you're muted, Alexander. <clears throat> um, indeed, I had a. Well, I was going to thank the ambassador for his very clear and comprehensive reply on this important topic. Can I ask uh, the ambassador? Did, is there any feeling? We've just had this summit meeting in Vilnius, which is, of course, not very far away from Belarus. Is there any feeling that after Vilnius? Um, there's been a policy shift in the West that perhaps, um, despite the very, very strong rhetoric that came out of, Belar uh, of Vilnius, the um, process of escalation might be starting to dial down. I, I say that because it didn't seem to me that proposals came out of Vilnius that made what is already a very, very bad situation significantly worse and when that escalation process seems to slow down, maybe that there, maybe we are going to start to see a easing of tensions, or am I being wildly over-optimistic? I just wanted to ask that. We want to be just as optimistic as you are. Yeah. We are ready for that. In fact, yeah. that's what we are seeking. We, we are seeking dialogue and uh, we are seeking uh, a negotiated solution and uh, and a reliable uh, security system in in Europe which would uh, which everybody would uh, agree to and agree uh, and maintain when it comes to Vilnius I think uh, there is one thing uh, worth mentioning because uh, when uh, our president was saying that we are seeking at least a bad peace. He was speaking about bad peace with the political leadership of our Western neighbors. When it comes to people-to-people -people contacts and relations between peoples, um, there are some very interesting uh, things going on and remarkable uh, facts how Belarus reacted to escalation of the situation in the region last year and to unprecedented sanctions and pressure exercised by the West against us. In uh, spring last year, we have dropped visa requirements for the citizens uh, of the Baltic countries and non-citizens as well, or how they are uh, nicely called aliens uh, residing in, in Latvia. So Lithuanians, Latvians, Estonians uh, can visit Belarus without a visa. In uh, summer uh, last year, we extended this uh, possibility to our Polish neighbors. 
what happened was surprising and I I, I, I think rather disappointing for the political leadership of these countries. Because since then, we had something uh, like 600,000 visits by citizens of these countries uh, to Belarus on a visa-free basis. There are queues of Lithuanians and Latvians eager to to enter Belarus uh, every weekend. And uh, Vilnius and, and Riga, not to mention Warsaw, are doing everything to impede their own citizens from visiting Belarus, uh, trying to scare them off uh, with uh, uh, stories about... Uh, Belarus, but when people come and see and visit for themselves, they tend to come back again and then again and again on shopping tours to visit health facilities to 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 stay in in Belarusian resorts. So uh, the 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 tissue of relations, this this uh, links between us and our neighbors are there. One thing uh, to take into consideration when it comes to Ukraine. Since the start of the conflict, uh, I I, I should uh, consult uh, current figures, but uh, it is uh, is definite that at least 100,000 Ukrainians came to Belarus. Not directly. From Ukraine, it is impossible. But from and through the European Union, mostly Poland and Lithuania, they go there as refugees and then they come to Belarus where they feel themselves more secure and uh, and where they stay. Thousands of Ukrainians uh, received Belarusian citizenship last year. And the line of applications is is, is long. So, despite all the all the the, the grievances, despite all the um, all the bitterness in our relations with uh, the governments of neighboring countries, the underlying people to people relations uh, show remarkable signs of. Uh, Good neighborliness and uh, being able to to uh, to resist uh, this political and media uh, pressure. As for um, the future and uh, and signs of hope on the horizon, we are we are looking forward to see them just as just as you do. And we are not only seeing and expecting them to to to, uh, uh, to surface, but we are actively working to bring uh, the day closer when meaningful exchanges will be back in into uh, the relations between the East and the West, when we uh, will try to find. Uh, a meaningful diplomatic solution to all the crises. 
Just to give you one example, in, in April this year, in, in his uh, address to the Belarusian people and uh, Belarusian parliament, President Lukashenko put forward what he immediately called an unpopular proposal, both in the East and in the West. But he publicly called for an immediate ceasefire, immediate uh, freezing of all troops movement along the front line, and diplomatic negotiations uh, between Russia and, and Ukraine. Unfortunately, a no, a firm no to this proposal came from Kiev even before he finished his speech. But we are not discouraged by that. We keep working, uh, both publicly and less publicly, through normal diplomatic communications to bring this day close. I think that um, overexposure of diplomacy uh, to media spotlight and this this attempt to 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 uh, stay in the headlines all all the time uh, it very much influences uh, position uh, of of the West and uh, and of uh, Ukraine and and. Uh, a lot of people, I've heard a lot of uh, well-informed people saying that uh, you don't need, uh, you don't win uh, a war uh, in the in the news. You win it on the battlefield, and uh, and sometimes situation is uh, drastically different one between what is actually going on and what is being portrayed in the media. But we 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 work hard. And we are there whenever, whenever uh, good offices are needed, whenever a, a voice of reason is needed, we are there. Because unlike pretty much anyone else, we are we are. Uh, it is it is vital for for us to to have peace restored in our region. Some countries may do it. And some leaders may 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 uh, try to uh, do it in order to to promote their agendas, to to portray themselves as important leaders, and and they are important leaders. But uh, it's only Belarus which is really sincerely interested in a swift and negotiated solution. I want to ask uh, about uh, uh, the development of ties between. Russian Belarus, because well, Alexander pointed out there yeah, correctly that Belarus has is, has not been a satellite of Russia, uh, but nonetheless, in in this partnership, there is obviously asymmetries uh, with uh, Russia being more more powerful. And a concern in the past, of course, has been for Belarus: how does it preserve its autonomy as it gets closer uh, closer with Russia? And uh, um, and uh, yeah, I want to put in the context of this yeah, of the current conflict or the war in. In Ukraine, as uh, now there's Russian troops in in Belarus. Is, is do you see any pressure from Russia that Belarus should get engaged in this in the conflict, or what is the uh, yeah, how, how how does uh, how, how does uh, especially with the Russian troops in in Belarus, how does how does this affect uh, the policies of uh, Belarus, or is Russia more comfortable with Belarus being more autonomous or? Um, is staying outside of the conflict for now. Um, I will 
give a short answer and then a longer explanation. A short answer. I was starting with the notion of the Russian troops. Well, well this was uh, the step we undertook before the decision was taken to uh, to place uh, to station uh, uh, tactical nuclear weapons in in the Belarusian territory, because it was back in uh, October last year when Belarus officially uh, put into practice our agreements with Russian Federation on the joint uh, uh, group of forces with the Russian Federation. We saw a massive military buildup, both along our border with uh, Poland, but also along our border with Ukraine and the Baltic states. And I, I told you the numbers. Belarus has a capable but very compact uh, uh, army, and there is no way would get, uh, we could have kept all the perimeter with the West equally safe. So we uh, we um, implemented the mechanism agreed upon with Russian Federation uh, decades ago, so that. Russia sent its ground troops to Belarus and kept them there. Just, uh, you know, mm, look at the logic of the Baltic countries or Poland for that matter. They all insist on American troops being deployed in their territory, saying that's our security policy. If there is a single American soldier there and something starts, the Americans will inevitably come in. Our logic was roughly the same. With Russian troops present in our territory, we felt more secure. That was the case in October last year. But the developments didn't stop there. And then military buildup in the West continued. And that's when the decision was uh, adopted regarding nuclear, uh, tactical nuclear weapons. So you should put it in a, in, in a bigger context. You should put it in a bigger context to, to, to understand, to see the whole picture. As for the, uh, the role of uh, Belarus, uh, I think uh, our president... Uh, put it best when he said once, Belarus is best where, where it is. Best for Russia, but also best for ourselves. Uh, the shortest route to Moscow from the, from the, from the West comes through, through Minsk. And this, this is uh, a geographic fact. And, uh, Geography is something you, you have to live with. You cannot change geography. And that is why Belarus is good where it is doing what it is doing. Uh, Moscow is safe from, from the West as long as, as uh, Belarus is there doing what it's doing. Getting back, and I'm sorry that I, I, I somehow drifted away from your question regarding 
Belarus being a satellite of Russia or a country dependent on Russian Federation. Well, uh, uh, it is uh, it is easy for me to answer, but uh, my my answer. Uh, can be easily questioned, as I am representing Belarus, and uh, why should you trust him? Okay, if you don't trust me, trust what the others think, and uh, trust and look at what other countries think about Belarus and what they do. Uh, in September last year, it was proclaimed. In March this year, it was put on paper uh, in an extensive manner. Belarus and China have upgraded their relations to the level of all-weather comprehensive strategic partnership. All-weather comprehensive strategic partnership. I don't think that China would be uh, willing uh, to uh, declare such a level of relation and, and pursue uh, such a level of relation with uh, uh, somebody but an independent and sovereign country, which we are. And again, to 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 give you a, a, a to put it in the bigger picture, this outstanding level of relations. Uh, China maintains with less than a handful of countries. I remember Pakistan and Brazil. So we are playing in the same league. And uh, I, can, I cannot name you another country in the world which has such an advanced level of relations with both Moscow and Beijing. Only Belarus. So much for the question uh, whether uh, we are a satellite of Russia or not. We are uh, a partner and we are an ally of uh, Russian Federation. Um, uh, a, a rather strong partner and a very firm ally because we are there whether it's uh, whether the weather outside is good or bad, we do not call our uh, alliance all weather. Uh, that's a Chinese way of describing, very telling way of describing relations. But still, this can be applied also to our relations with Russian Federation. And look what's happening now. I told you that our exports to Russia grew by more than forty percent uh, against the. Uh, background of uh, Western sanctions, Russia has practically rediscovered Belarus as an industrial nation because whatever they need, we produce. Or we are able to produce if we put some time and resources into that. We maintained a lot of competences, capabilities, industrial infrastructure. We did that when it wasn't extremely unpopular, and everybody was saying, "Why do we need an elevator plant in uh, in Mogilev, regional center of Belarus? We'll be buying them from Finland." Now we maintain this plant, and now uh, these elevators uh, they are uh, 
more or less in each and every uh, new built house in in, in Russia. Uh, Belarus uh, is capable of producing anything from uh, microchips. We, I think we, besides Russia, maybe, we are the only post-Soviet Republic which maintain this capability of producing in the sphere of microelectronics. Uh, we produce everything from microchips to uh, lorries capable of transferring up to 420 tons of cargo. Belarus. Belarus is the fourth largest milk and dairy exporter in the world, fourth largest after the European Union, the US, and New Zealand. It just you don't see our milk in uh, in in Coop uh, or uh, in uh, uh, in Tesco because uh, everything is exported to Russia or China or Pakistan. Or Southeast Asia. These are our markets. But being a relatively small country with 1% of global production of milk, we are, uh, are uh, a, a huge player in, in, the, in the global food market. Not only because of milk production, by the way. Uh, uh, we've mentioned uh, food uh, security. And today I was I was struck by this incredibly uh, pessimistic figures uh, disclosed by the United Nations. They are saying that the number of uh, people who are facing starvation in the world grew by more than 120 million, reaching 732 million people. Belarus is absolutely self-sufficient when it comes to uh, agricultural production. We export uh, agricultural uh, products and food for something like 8 billion US dollars a year. Uh, but uh, we are also the second largest producer of potassium fertilizers in the world. And what's happening now since 2022, Belarus is uh, being subjected to, uh, uh, to illegal sanctions. And our exports of potassium fertilizers, traditional transport routes, which went through Lithuania, are illegally blocked uh, by the Lithuanian government, backed by the European Union and the US. In contradiction with lots of uh, fundamental international documents. What, what happens because of it? Well, uh, the crops in Africa last year diminished by more than 16% due to lack of fertilizers. No wonder they diminished that much because Belarus has been exporting, has been uh, supplying uh, almost half of potassium used in Africa. You may want to punish Belarus because you dislike Belarusian politics, but in the end, you are punishing people in Africa. And you have a surge in hungry people. And then you, 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 uh, you say, well, we will help. 
will provide money and, uh, and assistance and, and so on. But that's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy writ large. Because you are depriving farmers from means to, to produce food and then write it off saying that these are consequences of the conflict in Ukraine. No, they are not. They, these are consequences of legal sanctions introduced against Belarus. It's that simple. So uh, we are happy about uh, our relations and uh, the level of our relations with Russian Federation. We are strong partner of Russia and we are uh, an ally of Russian Federation, a very consequent ally of Russian Federation. But we are just as proud of our very high and uh, very special level of relations with uh, China. And we are seeking to maintain close and friendly relations with as many countries in the world as uh, it is possible. I mean, can, can I just say about that, uh, Ambassador, that this is in fact one of the fundamental divergences between the way the West perceives things and the way the rest of the world perceives this, things. In the West, they may lump Belarus and Russia together, but in the rest of the world, and not just China, and I speak to many people because that's the nature of the work that I do, around the rest of the world, it's quite different. People do see Belarus as a distinct and independent and sovereign country. For a small country, actually, it's surprising how much influence and attention Belarus receives around the world. And the same applies to the president of Belarus as well. In Around the rest of the world, maybe not so much in the West, but in the, the rest of the world, he is seen as a statesman of considerable stature, very differently from the way he's perceived in the West. That at least has been absolutely my understanding. And can I just ask you to discuss a little about the nature of Belarus's economy? Because, of course, it is ultimately the economy that is the um, base of any country. And you've already touched on it in various places. I've heard, for example, that Belarus is now going to be cooperating with Russia in aerospace development and aircraft production. I don't know whether you've heard about this, but uh, I, I, I mean, which is an enormous upgrade in some ways. I mean, it's it's not an upgrade. I mean, it's it, it tells you that there are those industrial skills that exist in Belarus to be able to do that. How did it happen? How has you, uh, Belarus succeeded? in preserving so successfully this industrial and manufacturing and high technology infrastructure, because this was also an area where it diverged markedly from other countries in its region, including to a great extent Russia itself. Well, uh, to understand why it happened and how it happened, we, we need to uh, look back into uh, into the history again, uh, Second World War. Before the Second World War, Belarus was largely an agricultural country with very little industry. What happened during the war? We not only lost one third of our population, virtually the whole country was destroyed. Minsk, which is now a city of two million people, 
had only 40,000 inhabitants the day when it was liberated on the 3rd of July, 1944. The country was, uh, the country uh, laid in ruins. What, what we had, we had a very strong and very patriotic leadership. Uh, remember I mentioned uh, that uh, we had a very strong partisan movement in, in Belarus during the war. After the war, the leaders of these partisan brigades, they became inevitably part of the uh, Peace Day leadership of Belarus. And these were people with a very strong will, a very strong love to their homeland, to their motherland, to their little mother, motherland, as we called uh, ourselves back then, and a very strong affiliation towards the Soviet Union. Because remember, regardless of the effort, regardless of the, 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 the heroism, liberation could only come from the East. So after the Second World War, this very strong, very patriotic and very capable leadership of Belarus, which in fact continued until the late 80s, this generation was leading Belarus. They, they did what they thought was best for, for the country. And what they thought was best was to develop industry. So they were lobbying in Moscow and they were doing everything possible to develop industry in Belarus. Uh, we should thank them for many things. And uh, now I, I, I often hear that Belarus is experiencing a brain drain. And I say, listen, look back at, into the 50s and 60s. We had hundreds of thousands of young Belarusians going to Kazakhstan, going to Russia, and uh, and creating industries there, like uh, the capital of the Russian oil, Tumin, is predominantly Belarusian city. Uh, its inhabitants they they come from Belarus originally. So what the policy implemented back then by the Belarusian leadership of uh, of rapidly developing an industrial base in Belarus was also a policy aimed at preserving and maintaining the the population there. This meant that in the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s, Belarus was an overly industrialized nation. Again, uh, uh, this, our exposure to foreign trade, exporting more than 60% of, of the GDP, it, it, it has its roots there. Because we had industries which were and which are too big for Belarus, like Minsk Tractor Works, they produced at the height of their capacity something like 8% of uh, uh, wheel tra uh, tractors. Now this figure is slightly less because there is more competition, including producers in India, China, but still it is a considerable figure. Uh, I, I, I told you about Bilas, which is capable of carrying up to 420 tons of cargo, like ore or coal. 
by the way, this is an electric vehicle. <laughs> so we are not only large, we are also green. We maybe use a dozen of them in Belarus. We do not have these industries in Belarus, yet we produce one third of the global production of such machines. And our closest uh, competitors are Caterpillar and Komatsu. So Belarus, when it became independent, had an industry which was, which was bigger than we needed and uh, bigger than the market that we had. Same thing, or roughly the same thing, was true also for some of our neighbors, so mostly uh, the Baltic countries. They also had their prominent industries, but you will never see them now. They are no longer there. For example, they were producing rough minibuses. They are no longer there. For them, dismantling these industries created in the, uh, in the Soviet days was a sign of regaining independence. They were back to the economic structure they liked and where they felt themselves comfortable. We were proud of our industry and of our economy. And we had, well, really no other choice but maintaining them because, because closing down these huge industries would mean tremendous shock for uh, the social structure. Minsk Tractor Works uh, back in the 90s, it was employing, I think, something like 35,000 people. Other companies as well. And when President Lukashenko came into power, his first and most important promise was, I will restart the industry. And he delivered. He delivered because by opening channels of communication and cooperation with Russia, he guaranteed Belarusian industry access to raw materials. By very active uh, foreign trade policy, he guaranteed markets to our uh, products. I, uh, this doesn't mean that our economy is stuck in the 80s or the 90s. I told you the figures uh, of, um, regarding our agriculture. Why are they that high? Because we had a highly industrialized agriculture. Big agricultural companies capable of concentrating resources. And besides, well, uh, we have uh, Belarus was uh, a country of swamps up until late 60s. We had something like 40% of our national territory covered in swamps. So all these lands, they were ameliorated, and we have, and we still have, this countrywide system of amelioration of agrable lands, which need maintenance. And it cannot be maintained if cut into pieces and small farms and, uh, and uh, outsourced. Now, the agricultural population in Belarus has diminished three times 
in comparison with what it was in the beginning of the 90s. Yet agricultural output has grown tremendously. So we are undergoing also processes of uh, uh, modernization and changes in our economy. Uh, prominent, another prominent example is swift development of IT competences in Belarus. Uh, this this uh, is an industry which uh, create uh, which created a lot of wealth in Belarus and uh, opened a lot of opportunities for our young people. But why do we have it? Because back in the 90s, instead of closing down educational institutions, which nobody really would have gone uh, to study at, like uh, uh, Guir, um, Belarusian State University uh, of Information and Robotics, I, I think, is the name of this educational institution. It wasn't all that popular in the beginning of the 90s. I mean, the, the dot-coms and uh, everything else that came way later. So the state, for a very long time, has been maintaining this institution, keeping it there, preserving the competences. And it paid off. It paid off hugely. Now with uh, China, we have a Chinese-Belarusian industrial park in, in, in uh, close to Minsk. And together with uh, the Chinese, we are developing the competences we didn't have before. Like we are building factories producing batteries for electric vehicles. We are um, uh, we are uh, implementing projects in uh, biotechnology and other spheres. We do what uh, helps us um, guarantee uh, continued industrial uh, growth in Belarus for years to come. Because uh, in previous, uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, we have inaugurated our nuclear power plant. And uh, now it has uh, uh, two reactors. And this uh, provides us with uh, access to reliable source of uh, electricity at a favorable price. Uh, we are developing competences in space. A lot of people were kind of skeptical in Belarus when we uh, said Belarus wants to become a space, uh, space, uh, a space power. Uh, when we first launched our when we launched our first satellite, then second satellite, then joint program of uh, research uh, with uh, Russian Federation. No, we did all that. And these were things which, uh, which need vision uh, on the part of the political leadership, which need concentration of state resources, and uh, which uh, need, uh, well, uh, People who are eager uh, to 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 uh, invest their talent uh, into these spheres, and we are happy that we we have uh, such people in in Belarus. Okay. 
Well, uh, Alexander, I'm not sure if you have any final questions or comments you want to make. Well, I, I, I've, uh, I think that I've uh, uh, exhausted uh, all my questions at the ambassador, but I would just say, again, from my point of view, thank you very much. And thank you also for explaining so much about um, Belarus and its role internationally and its position on this particular crisis that we have in Europe, which I'm actually... I'm going to say it, I'm mildly optimistic that we might be about to turn a corner. I think that um, things, uh, I, I was worried that they were going to get worse and on the battlefields they are very, very bad. But I think diplomatically we might start to see, to see negotiations. I'm very pleased that Belarus is still there making the case for peace. Somebody has to. And I'm also very grateful for what... Um, the ambassador has just told us about Belarus and its economic history. And I think that is an example, by the way, that other other nations should emulate. That the fact that a small country can build itself up politically, economically, diplomatically to the extent that Belarus has done. And as I explained to the ambassador just before, very short exchange we had before the program, uh, my wife is a regular visitor to Belarus and has spoken often about what a peaceful, happy, orderly country it is, what a prosperous country it is, very different from the impression people have about it in the West. So I, 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 I'm, I'm, I've said all the things that I basically wanted to say, all the questions I wanted to ask. I don't know whether you have anything to add, Glenn. Um, perhaps you could touch on the Greater Eurasian Partnership, which is, I know, something you brought up on the occasions yeah yeah no well that, well, that was my uh yeah key interest yeah. of mine as well the the industrial parks uh of uh of belarus and uh yeah, it's key well an important role it has in this uh you know greater eurasian partnership with merges the uh, eurasian economic union with their chinese belt and road initiative and all this uh yeah, different tech centers being established but uh i'm, I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on this well, uh, the Chinese Belarusian Industrial Park uh, is uh, has uh, an interesting history. Uh, well, uh, initially, uh, it was not supposed to be there. Initially, uh, the 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 first vague ideas about possible role of Belarus within the Belt and Road Initiative were largely concentrated on our transit potential. And uh, this transit potential has been put to good use, indeed, uh, and, uh, and is being put to good use, uh, helping uh, the, the road part uh, of the initiative to be uh, successfully implemented. But uh, it was the idea put forward by the Belarusian leadership that uh, besides being part of the road, Besides providing, let's say, storage capacities and possibilities being a hub uh, for uh, getting cargo from different parts of Europe and bringing it uh, to China and uh, the other way around, uh, Minsk and President Lukashenko have uh, always put forward something a bit more on the table, a new idea, something which would provide an edge 
to this. And the idea of the industrial park was precisely uh, what we offered our uh, Chinese partners. We told them, look, we have a capable uh, workforce uh, in Belarus, people with vision. Uh, we are close to uh, the Western European market. We are part of the large Eurasian uh, economic union and its market. And uh, we can work together um, applying Chinese technologies, including in spheres like biotechnologies and pharmaceuticals, for example. This is one of the, the specializations of the uh, Chinese-Belarusian uh, industrial park. And now we see uh, that these this possibilities have uh, been are being uh, exploited and put to, uh, to very good use. If you visit Belarus, you land in, 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 in Minsk airport and uh, very close to it, you see what actually is a new city built from scratch. And it's a very different Chinatown from what you expect uh, after you, you visit Chinatowns somewhere in the West or in, in, in Asia. It's a high-tech uh, new city, very green, both technologically, but also from the, uh, from the impression there. And we have a lot of promising industries there. They are now entering into the uh, implementation phase. We are already beyond uh, initial construction phase and first investments. And we will very soon see uh, how much uh, they they will generate and uh, and what new ideas, new products they will come up with. And that's this combination of uh, transit potential and joint production. Uh, that's combination, uh, unique combination, uh, prompted. Uh, I think President Xi uh, to to call Chinese Belarusian Industrial Park the pearl of the Belt and Road Initiative, and it is the largest Chinese industrial park outside China. So that's that's uh, what makes us very hopeful and very proud to host uh, such such a facility close to Minsk. This will create a lot of jobs. This will create a lot of opportunity and generate a lot of wealth for, for, for Belarusians. Well, uh, thanks again, Mr. Ambassador. I do appreciate it. And uh, yeah, like Alexander, I hope that uh, the appetite for war is declining and yeah, peace will come back to Ukraine. And uh, obviously, uh, I, I would advise everyone to keep an eye on Belarus in terms of this uh, uh, position in this great Eurasian partnership where it connects closer with uh, China as well as other countries on this yeah, large continent. And uh, yeah, I hope, to, hope I'll see you in Minsk in October, of course. So, uh, thank you very much. so thanks a lot for your time. Uh, and indeed, and to thank you for being so generous with your time as well, Ambassador. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure for me being on the program with you and answering your, your questions. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, I hope that uh, your viewers will have a better understanding of uh, what's going on and maybe uh, they uh, will uh, look with different eyes on uh, information regarding Belarus, which they find in mainstream media. I, uh, I sincerely hope and we work hard uh, to, to surprise in a positive way. Not I'm confident who visit Belarus, but also who who expect uh, for 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 peace uh, to uh, return uh, to our part of the world to return to Europe. Absolutely. Can I endorse that? And can I say that in terms of making people understand uh, better about Belarus, I'm confident that a program like this will. Thank you very much.